Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today we have Max Sharkansky. Since 2005, Max has led the acquisition, renovation, and disposition of over $800 million in mismanaged and distressed assets, primarily in multifamily. He started his real estate career as a senior associate at Marcus and Millichap in 2002. So thank you so much for being on. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. So uh, give us a little background on yourself prior to uh, getting involved with your, your own company right now. Um, well, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California, um, went to high school, college, did everything in LA, went to LMU, uh, graduated college. Once I was in college, I knew I wanted to be in real estate. Uh, I was in college during the time of the dot-com bust. And mm -hmm. a lot of that just didn't feel right with what was going on in the stock market. And I really loved the idea of a tangible asset which was the exact opposite of what dot coms were <laughs> at that time, at least. And, uh, you know, you could see it, feel it, touch it. And it just looked really cool and sexy and look at these beautiful high rises in the sky. Little, little did, did I know that's not what I was going to be working on, but it just seemed really, really cool at the time. Um, so uh, I started getting into real estate after college. I got into real estate uh, at Marcus and Millichap, got a job in their internship program and then became a broker. Um, once I was, in brokerage, I started to, you know, look at some of the other guys in the office that were buying some deals and they were doing very, very well on them, as were my clients, of course. And uh, that's where I wanted to be full time. So my partner, Mitch, and I started buying um, end of 05, early 06. Uh, he was on the debt side at HFF. And he was the same thing, you know, he just, he didn't want to be on the sell side forever. So uh, we started buying and um, bought our first couple properties end of 05, continued buying into 06. And then we left in 06, um, hit the ground running and aggregated a small portfolio during the last cycle. Um, we were fortunate enough to have really good timing and sell it. So most of it in mm -hmm. 08 prior to the crash. Um, it wasn't anything huge. It was a pretty small portfolio, but we did sell it in time. And as we were selling, we changed our model from value out of multifamily to buying non-performing debt secured by multifamily. Uh, so as we were selling, we were calling banks. Uh, a lot of the originators we had been dealing with over the years had become asset managers mm -hmm. and we were calling them to try to buy notes. Um, it was a log jam the first year and a half or so. The bid ask spread was just so huge. You know, We were trying to buy notes at like, 60 cents on the dollar, 65 cents on the dollar. They were trying to sell them for 97 cents on the dollar. We would call them, they would practically hang up on us. And then, you know, once the shit really hit the fan <laughs> in 09, uh, we, we bought our first few notes from a bank in LA. And from there, it just snowballed. And we had a very active downturn during the GFC. We did about 20 deals, uh, about 15 of which were uh, non-performing debt deals and about another five REO deals. Um, you know, at the time we were very, very competitive um, because a lot of the people buying notes were ex-finance guys who were just, you know, their model was buy, foreclose, flip, 
Whereas we had a infrastructure in place with a crew and property management. So our model was buy, foreclose, renovate, lease up, and then sell. So we could get a lot more aggressive with what we were paying and we were able to buy a lot of deals. So we actually had a very successful downturn. Uh, and then coming out of the downturn when the market cleared uh, end of 12, early 2013, we picked off our last REO and we just went back to the value add business. And now we've got a little over a couple thousand units in portfolio and we've probably done 5,000 plus units total. Um, so yeah, here we are. I just, we just opened an office in Miami, Florida. Uh, I personally just moved to Miami three weeks ago today and really excited about uh, the expansion. Nice. That's awesome. It's interesting. Uh, you said it took about uh, what, like a year after for the banks actually to come to terms or the sellers to come to terms that the market is uh, pulled back. And I always find that because it happened to me in 09 when I was buying properties and the deals didn't come up until like end of 09. And I think at the end of 08, they're still like, oh, everything, you know, and I think in 09 and early 2010, they came to terms like, oh, yeah, this is this is the only way we're going to be able to sell this is that we have to discount this. And they're accepting. Um, they'll listen to you for even crazy offers you're making and they'll counter even crazy offers. So it was a very interesting time and wild time uh, during those, those years. But um, so after buying REOs, how has your strategy kind of moved, uh, progressed to where we are now? And what are you really focusing on now? Are you, I mean, most syndicators are really focused on doing light value ads. Obviously you guys have like a construction company, a management company. So you're doing, I would imagine more heavy value add deals. Is that, is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. That's what we've done historically. Um, you know, when I say historically, I mean, you know, since 2012, 13, uh, during the downturn, it was very heavy value add. I would say it was more opportunistic than value add because mm -hmm. during that period, we were buying properties that were 40, 50% occupied, heavily distressed, um, just needed a full repositioning. Uh, then coming out of the downturn, you know, we went back to just a heavy value add model and we're buying, you know, we're buying product on the web. We were buying on the West coast in very high rent growth markets um, that were going through a lot of change. So we were able to spend a lot of money on assets that had really been neglected and, you know, not, I shouldn't just say neglected, but they hadn't really been driving rents because there was so much change happening and so much rent growth and, markets like the, for example like the east bay where we were buying you know east bay used to be a sleepy suburban market and what it had transformed into was a feeder market into san francisco uh with people that make six-figure incomes like m most of our properties in the east bay today have average household income of uh six figures or very very close to it and that hadn't been remotely close to being the case um, so because you had such a strong demographic, uh, you're able to really reposition an asset, make it very, very nice and create almost, you know, your own asset class in between class B and class A. Interesting. Uh, what type of debt are you guys getting on these, uh, heavier ads and, uh, these repositions? Traditionally it's bridge. Um, we had a really nice run the last couple of years with agency buying in I and mean, we still do continue to use agency but right now it's mostly on refis uh mm -hmm. cap rates have compressed so much over the past i would say three four or five months 
that has unfortunately gone out the window um, with agency and you know stuff trading at sub four caps going in. It's very very difficult right now for us, you know, on the heavy value add stuff to buy with agency debt. Um, we did just close one, but it was a newer vintage deal that was a more light value add. So we we can use agency debt with more light value add, but on the heavier value add stuff where you're buying at sub four caps, mm-hmm. uh, it's bridge, you know, 70% loan to cost, um, mm-hmm. L3. Yeah. Okay, uh, interesting, yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, cause you're not usually on something like that, you're probably not gonna be able to get agency with that heavy of a, of a rehab and they probably not even at 90% for 90 days on the occupancy front. Right, exactly. Yeah. So let's, uh, you guys do a lot of these rehabs. How are you, because I get this question, I just got this question actually yesterday from someone I was speaking to, and they're planning out a rehab and uh, making sure they're not to over improve the assets. Now you're going into these areas that are really gentrifying, like your East Bay, um, what you're talking about there. How do you uh, kind of plan it out so you're not over improving? And uh, is it just running and really uh, like uh, touring these comps? Or are you kind of uh, going in and just as like being an outlier and you're going in and kind of just saying we can push it because the demand's there? Like, how do you define kind of how we're going to finish it and how much we're going to put into each unit? That's a great question. Well, you know, again, these areas are going through such rapid change. (laughs) When you're entering a new market, you really don't know uh, until you just do some old fashioned trial and error. So you go in, you have a certain budget for, let's say, you know, a high octane reno, and you're going to spend whatever it is, dollars $20,000 a unit in areas like the East Bay. And you are going to, let's say, you know, quote unquote, over improve it uh, in the beginning um, to see if you are in fact over improving it. So you, you sample a few different specs of renovations and if you're able to charge premium rents for every dollar that you spend on renovations, then you just roll with that, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're spending, for example, $20,000 a unit and you see that you're getting a substantial premium over to what you'd be getting twelve dollars to $13,000 a unit, then uh, you roll with that renovation. Mm-hmm. Um, or if it's, you know, dollars to $13,000 a unit, $15,000 a unit versus something that's seven or $8,000 a unit, which is what we're doing right now in Sacramento. We bought a deal last year in Sacramento. We were thinking, you know, it was kind of be probably like a 10 to $12,000 a unit, like nice renovation, but nothing too crazy. But we found that we have been able to get a premium on that 13 to $17,000 a unit. And that's a pretty wide range. And I I give you that range because that includes a washer dryer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that maximum renovation for that market we found that there is a demand for it so we're continuing to do that yeah so it's like a trial and error and kind of like getting proof of concept on different finishes uh before you uh go through the whole property with them with the first property in that market yeah. right so first you, property like, in the market okay there you go so like yeah exactly so for like this deal you know we hadn't bought in Sac- we haven't bought anything in sacramento in years and we bought that deal in sac and you know now we know how that particular submarket of sacramento is going to respond to the renovation. So, you know, moving forward, that's what we'll do as we acquire assets in that area. Yeah, that makes sense because when you're going into areas that are really, you're riding that gentrification wave, uh, you might say, you know, I'm driving through a neighborhood and this has been renovated, that's been renovated. Um, This is what they chose for doing finishes, but you might be a block or two away and it might be different. I mean, it might be a completely different uh, how, you know, you might be going for the stainless steel and uh, 
and granite versus uh, something a little bit less expensive. Sounds like all yours are very high end, but uh, when we're working like in a B minus B area, that's a C plus area, that's kind of stuff and questions that we have come up. But um, so you own a lot of these assets in tenant friendly states, like uh, I see a lot of Oregon, see a lot of California. Uh, how are you maneuvering and owning and managing properties in these states, especially with what we've been going through here, um, which is still continuing in, in those states with these moratoriums? Well, that's part of the reason why we opened a new office in Miami to cover a region of the country that's a little more business friendly. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, here we are covering the Southeast, Florida, Georgia, and the Carolinas. um, And it's just much more easier to operate here. So we don't have to deal with with a lot of those headaches. And, you know, when I say headaches, I don't mean just the existing regulations. It's also moving of the goalposts, right? So, you know, the problem with California and Oregon, I'd say the main problem and some of these markets, you know, like New York and some of these other markets is you just don't know what they're going to do next. I'd say that's the main risk is Mm. with one stroke of the pen, everything changes. Um, A lot of the regs that they've put in place over the past few years, like AB 1482 in California and the rent stabilization in Oregon at the state level, we can work pretty well within that framework because, you know, California is five plus CPI, Oregon is seven plus CPI. So, you know, hypothetically speaking, if CPI is uh, 3%, so Oregon, you can raise rents by 10, California, you can raise rents by eight. So on a hold of two, three, four years, you're able to get to market. Um, So that's the easy part. The hard part is just not knowing what they're going to do next. Yeah. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Um, yeah, because also they can take that, uh, what you just said for the accepted rent increase, and they might shave off two points off that and uh, overnight, and you don't know. And now when you're talking to investors, now you've added another year or two to the timetable of when you're trying to achieve these rents for uh, all the finishes and for all the work you've done. So I can see how that could be uh, aggravating and uh, to say the least. Yep, exactly. To say the least. <laughs> so with your firm being, you have a vertically integrated firm, uh, you're handling property management in-house, you're handling construction in-house. Uh, how does, as I spoke to other, uh, other operators before that have this, and usually it's for more control, um, or is this really adding this in in-house? Is it for an additional profit center or is it just so you can, you know exactly what costs are, you have a better handle on that and you can kind of control the pro- the project a little bit more, um, uh, hands-on, I guess you would say. Absolutely the latter. Um, it had not been a profit center for us for years. In fact, we lost money because we always had a higher payroll than we did fees coming in from property management and construction management. It was really, you know, in terms of just like looking at the fee income, but the way we looked at it is, okay, if we have great talent in-house and we're able to control cost efficiency, time efficiency, then we know we'll ultimately have a higher NOI, we'll have much better product and we'll sell it for more money. So everybody wins, uh, our LPs make more money, we generate a higher IRR, we of course then make a higher promote and that'll cover all those costs, but we'll, we'll lose money along the way. So it was kind of sort of like a loss leader for us. Now that we've gotten more scale, I would say we probably break even more or less on the property management mm-hmm. uh, part of the business in terms of fees. But again, you know, it's, it's not just about the fees. It's about the creation of value in the asset uh, and getting the highest return possible for our investors. 
Okay. That's a great answer. The, um, so how is your investment strategy and criteria currently right now? I mean, after moving down and kind of focusing uh, a lot on the Southeast, are you still focusing on similar B plus A minus assets? Have you kind of, has that transitioned at all? Uh, what are you guys really looking at? And uh, what's your criteria and strategy down here in the Southeast? So in California and Oregon, there's a lot of 70s product. Uh, so we buy a ton of 70s on the West Coast. Um, same with Colorado. We're in Colorado as well. It's a mix of 70s and 80s. Here in the Southeast, they've done a really great job over the years just building and creating a lot of product. So here we probably wouldn't buy as much 70s product, but there's a ton of 80s and 90s and 2000s. And here they just kept building. So there's a lot more to buy and a lot more, and there's a lot more new product to buy. And when I say new, I mean like nineties in New York. So we just got awarded our first deal in North Carolina and that was built in two phases, 288 units built in two phases, 02 to 06. Um, You don't really have that on the West coast because in California, everything that was built between call it, you know, the dot-com bust, 01 and the GFC 0708 was really all condos. They didn't really build much for rent multifamily. So that doesn't exist for us to buy. Whereas here they did. They built a ton of garden style for rent multifamily and we're able to buy some product that's a little bit more light value add. And we don't have to worry about systems, plumbing, electrical, you know, everything is more up to date. We don't have to change out old Zinsco panels where, you know, they can catch fire and you've got some life safety issues. Yeah. Um, which, you know, makes value add here, I would say a little bit easier. Yeah, I can definitely see that you're not worrying about aluminum wiring, you're not worrying about no. uh, asbestos and uh, lead paint and all this kind of fun stuff that happens with properties, 70s, 60s, and before. But <laughs> the, yeah, galvanized plumbing. That's a huge thing out in California too. I see that all the time when I talk to other developers out there. The, um, what, uh, so when you're, when you're down here, cause I mean, the Southeast loves the garden style apartments, that's for sure. So you have more than enough, uh, inventory to look at. What are common mistakes you see when you speak to other real estate investors? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think something that you see and something I definitely saw on people doing a lot of business in LA in the, over the past six, seven, eight years is underwriting an exit cap that's too low. I mean, now with what's happened over the past six months, it doesn't look as bad. Uh, it's masked that mistake, but I saw a lot of guys do very poorly in let's say, you know, 2017, 2018, 2019, because they were buying a lot of rent control product and, you know, 14, 15, 16, thinking they're going to turn a lot of units and buy out and do that whole thing and retenant it and sell it for a four and a half cap. But they weren't able to do that because a lot of the new product was selling it, you know, kind of four and a quarter. So why would somebody buy a 1960s renovated rent control product for four and a half when they can go buy a 2018 product for four and a quarter? Mm -hmm. And I saw a lot of those ultimately sit on the market for months and months and just trade for much higher prices because I'm sorry, for much higher cap rates and lower prices, because there wasn't demand for fully renovated rent control product in SoCal. 
Interesting. Uh, when you were going through 07 and 06 and 08, um, how did you kind of weather that? You said you got rid of a lot of properties in 07, but um, I imagine you still had ownership in some properties going through. Uh, what were some of the tactics and strategy you uh, you utilized to uh, get you through that uh, that period? So we sold most of it in 08. We had a 08. couple of properties trickle into 09, um, which we ultimately sold also. So we didn't have any legacy assets throughout the GFC other than, you know, call it the first quarter of 2009. And on those two properties, one of them, we actually sold at a profit because we had increased the NOI by so much. Um, and then the second one, we sold at a small loss, but we didn't have any investors in that deal. It was just me and my partner. Uh, so we, you know, we just lost a couple bucks on a deal that we owned on our own. And the way we looked at it is let's just sell even though we're taking a loss, let's just sell it because that'll free up the cash yeah. and allow us to buy non-performing debt and REO, which is much more high octane than just sitting on an asset for the next five years so that you don't, you know, quote unquote, lose money on it. And it, show, it doesn't show poorly on your track record. So we didn't care about that. That's, mm -hmm. that's a small way of thinking. And we just, you know, want to get the cash out and reinvest into something else, which uh, ultimately, you know, in retrospect was the smart thing to do. Yeah, that's uh, fantastic. I, I haven't heard other people doing that before. Some people hold held all the way through. On the property that you uh, increased the NOI on, was it just a very heavy value add or was it really mismanaged or was it a mix of both? Both. It was very, very heavy value add. Um, it had low rents. We were able to improve the asset quite a bit and drove rents substantially. Yeah. So that's great for any listeners. If uh, increasing the NOI allows you, I imagine if you ever wanted to refinance that or anything like that with that increased NOI, he adds value to the property and he has no problem even if they scale back their loan to value on the refinancing. So uh, that's, a, that's a great tip. Uh, so Max, what are some uh, main factors that have contributed to your success over the years? Um, I would say taking calculated risks is huge. You know, I left a very well-paying job at Marcus, you know, I was doing really, really well. My partner was doing fantastic at HFF and we started from scratch buying our own deals and, you know, ultimately scaling that business. And we took, you know, that, that was obviously, you know, a big risk mm -hmm. doing that. And then we took a lot of risk along the way and, you know, con continuing to scale and hiring more people and signing office leases with big rent and taking on space so that we can hire more and grow internally um, and then breaking out of our comfort zone, uh, you know, 10, 12 years ago, buying outside of SoCal. And then we started buying in NorCal and other secondary and tertiary markets. We started buying in Fresno and Sacramento. And then we started buying out of state. And, you know, that was a new risk for us. And we started buying in Oregon. And then we started buying in some other markets. And uh, just don't be scared to break out of your comfort zone and grow. Interesting. Here so, I am today in Miami, you know, just, <laughs> I, I took a risk three weeks ago and moved my whole family to Miami and we're taking a risk with a new office here and, and new staff and we're hiring. We, we already made our first hire and we're looking at, uh, uh, employees three, four and five as well down here in, in Miami. So, you know, you got to just continue to take that risk mm -hmm. and scale. Nice. Um, so how can our listeners learn more about you and your business, Max? 
Um, well, you can go online, go to tryonproperties.com. Actually, right now it's tryon-properties.com. And we've got a lot of education on the website. Uh, you can sign up uh, as an investor. You can log in and create an account. Um, I believe it's at the top center of the page. We just change where that link is. So definitely create an account and be added to our distribution. And you could see all of our materials on uh, what we're buying and what we currently have out there, our fun, any new deals and uh, learn a lot about our company. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on today and uh, looking forward to uh, connecting with you here in the near future, especially now that you are down here with me in Florida. Yes. Great to be here. Thanks a lot for having me, Charles. Thank you. Hi guys, it's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at ScheduleCharles.com. That's ScheduleCharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.